You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Church, if you were standing up, you can go ahead and grab a seat. It's such a privilege to be here with you today to preach God's word to you, to bring the word of God to you. Please go ahead. If you have your Bible, grab it. If it's beside you, pick it up. If you need to go run to the other room quickly, get it. Because we're going to be in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Verses 33 to 36 in Romans 11. The popular saying goes like this. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. What we think will impact the way we live. I'll say it again. What we think, the way we think, will impact the way we live, the way we respond to circumstances and situations. This is true in each and every one of our lives. Case in point, in my life and the lives of my twin daughters, I won't tell you which one. They say in preaching school, you're never supposed to say which kid you're talking about when you tell a story about them. It's the oldest one, but they're twins, and they look the same, so you'll never know. When I put my kids to bed, what will happen is often I'll put them to bed, I'll leave the room, and all of a sudden I'll hear a loud, piercing wail, and I'll rush back into the room, and my eldest daughter will say, Papa, Papa, it's dark. Papa, Papa, it's dark. You see, ideas have consequences. She has the idea in her mind that a dark room means danger. That idea now elicits the response of fear. And so she calls out for her daddy, and I rush in to save her from the dark. Ideas have consequences, in fact, even in the Christian life, in your life, in my life, in each and every one of our lives. Do you know that the idea that you have about God affects you more than you could ever imagine? What you think, how you think about God affects your response to God. How you think about God will affect your response to God. It will affect every aspect of your life. If you think the God you serve is a weak and small and puny and indifferent God, then you'll respond to him as though he were like that. You'll respond to him as though he were like any other deity, like the gods you read of in a fable or in mythology or in tales. You respond to him as though he had no power whatsoever. And yet on the opposite end, loved ones, brothers and sisters, consider this. If you understand the God of the universe as he shows himself in the scriptures, if you truly grasp the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the the might, the omnipotence of our God, it will change your life. It will change your year. Whatever this year holds for you, if you grasp this great reality that our God is awesome, it will change you. And your response will be one of genuine and authentic and fervent worship. Brothers and sisters, this is your greatest need for this year, 2021. This is by far your greatest need. It is to once again fix your eyes on God, to see him as he is, and to worship. This is what you need desperately. This is what you must have right now, an elevated vision, a right understanding of who our God is. We'll see in Romans chapter 11, 
the writings of a man who encountered God firsthand. And we'll see as he saw God, worship began to flow from his life. And it's my prayer that the same would happen to you, that as we look at Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, you would encounter God and worship would begin to flow from your life and it would characterize the rest of your 2021. Look now at your Bible. We'll read verses 33 to 35 and that will lead us to our first point in looking at the awesomeness of our God. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Open your Bibles, get there, look at it. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation mark. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, exclamation mark. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul says it very clearly. I hope you see it there. The awesomeness of our God. This leads us to our first point. God is awesome. You can write this down. Our first point, there is no one like God. Be in awe. There is no one like our God. Be in awe of him. This is the amazingness of our God, the awesomeness of our God. There's no one like him. Be in awe. Look at verse 33 in your Bible. Paul begins this section, and he starts off with this two-letter word, O-H. Oh! Don't just read it like, oh. No, no, no. You have to read it with that, that gumption inside of you. This is a word oozing and dripping with worship. Oh, 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 what? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You see, Paul had just been going through Romans all throughout the first 11 chapters of Romans, outlining the plan of salvation. We see him there ascending that mountain, Everest, as it were, ascending from Romans 6 and 7, the battle of sin, the battle that a Christian has against sin. We see that the Spirit gives us strength to fight against sin. Romans 8, we're ascending the peak. We're ascending the mountain. Romans 8, we see the power of the Spirit indwelling us. And we see the love of God for us that will never run out. Romans 9, we see the electing power of God to save whom he wills. Romans 10, we see the plan of salvation. We see that we must preach the word in order for people to be saved. And then Romans 11, we're almost there. We're almost there. Paul outlines for us that God is able to save both unworthy Jews and undeserving Gentiles. God is able to have mercy on both unworthy, undeserving, evil men and women who are Jewish in heritage. And he's likewise able to save everyone else, Greek, Gentile, everyone. He's able to save you and I and to have mercy on us. And now he's at the precipice. He's at the top of the mountain. And he's now surveying the landscape. He's looking at the redemptive narrative of God. And all he can say is, oh. Oh! Brothers and sisters, isn't this to be the response that we have when we understand and know the plan of God to save us? Isn't this the end goal for every time we open up the Bible, every time we sing worship to God, every time we pray together, this is the end goal. It's to arrive at this point, at this experience where we cannot withhold it. Paul, you can imagine they're sitting there with maybe a, a fountain pen with a little feather on top, writing on parchment paper, writing out the book of Romans, and he has to put down his pen and he has to say, oh, how amazing is our God. How awesome is our God who saves people like you, people like me, people like us, church. 
Brothers and sisters, right now, is that what your experience is as you look and read God's word? Is that the experience that you are having on a regular basis as you encounter the Lord through his word? Maybe right now you need to be truthful and admit that no, that isn't your experience. That worship isn't the natural result that you're experiencing as you read God's word, as you sing his worship, as you pray. If that's the case, admit that before the Lord. Join me, because I'm with you in this. Join me in admitting to God that, God, so often our eyes are not on you. Our gaze is not transfixed on you. Our hearts are so cold and we are so distracted and we lose sight of how amazing you are. Know that our God is merciful and that he receives our repentance. And yet, now make this a resolution for this year. You want a resolution for 2021? We're 10 days in. You probably have some resolutions. Probably some of them have already failed. Make this the biggest one of your year. To set your eyes on knowing the Lord. To set your eyes transfixed on the greatness of God. That this would be your reality. That you would arrive at that place of, oh. Because you know what? When we encounter God in the word, he sets us on fire. When we encounter the Lord through his word, he will always set hearts on fire. It's what happened in Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road. Two disciples speaking with the resurrected Jesus. He was camouflaged. He didn't show himself. They did not know who they were speaking with. And yet as Jesus began to tell these two disciples of himself in the Old Testament, what did it say? It said that their hearts burned within them. May that be our experience this year, brothers and sisters, to say, Lord, may that be us. May our hearts burn within you, within us, as we see your greatness. Paul keeps going now, and he's about to expound to us what exactly is it about God that makes him shout, oh. He begins in verse 33. Look again at your Bible. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He begins the depth of the riches. Paul speaks here of the riches of God, not necessarily monetary, monetary wealth, although, granted this, God owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hill belongs to him. God really is the richest ever if we were talking monetarily, but it's beyond that. When Paul speaks of the riches of God, he's speaking of the infinite goodness of God's character. He's speaking of the infinite mercy of the Lord, his endless love, his measureless patience, his unending grace, his constant faithfulness. When Paul speaks of the riches of God, he's saying that God, you yourself, you are amazing. Think of Moses in Exodus 34. He's asked the Lord to reveal himself to a man, to show God, to show himself to a man, Moses. And as God reveals his goodness, what is the end result? Moses bows to the ground and worships. And what does God speak of himself? He speaks of his mercy, his grace, his judgment, and his love. These are the riches of God. And it's all of this that fills Paul with a sense of awe and amazement. Brothers and sisters, know that each of these attributes of God, each of these wonders of our God, they are all towards you and I. As his people, his love, his mercy, his grace, they overflow and abound towards you and I. No matter what your situation or circumstance is, this is the greatness of our God. All of his goodness overflows onto his people. How amazing is our God? How awesome is our Lord? He is awesome. He is incredible. This is why Paul has to say, oh, the depth of the riches 
And now he says, and wisdom, and wisdom and knowledge of God. What is wisdom? What is knowledge? Well, knowledge is the reality that God knows everything. And wisdom is the reality that God does what is best with what he knows. Wisdom and knowledge, they go hand in hand, and God possesses them both. Perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge. This is, this is our great and amazing God. Perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge. Even right now, consider with me the wisdom and knowledge of God on display. Think of even the gospel narrative, the gospel truth. Think about this. The God of the universe, our king, our great and awesome God, dwelling in perfection in the three persons of the Trinity. Do you understand that God in the beginning was not empty? God wasn't lacking. God wasn't lacking in any sense or any way, rather because of his own fullness of joy, because of his own satisfaction of life, he said to himself, I would desire to create humanity and everything that they may likewise experience my joy and experience my goodness and experience my love. And so he creates the universe, he creates the world, he creates the first people, and there was harmony and there was blessing. But we know it doesn't last. Genesis 3 comes, and the people, the first people, Adam and Eve, rebel against the living God. And ever since then, we've all been tainted with that rebellion. And we all turn away from God. Now, let's pause. Like, if you and I were God, and we were in control, and we were the ones writing the script, like, at that moment, I'll speak for myself. At that moment, Genesis 3 happens, I'd be saying to myself, oh, man, like, maybe I didn't think this through. Like, these people have messed up everything. Like, what are they doing? Like, I've only ever been good to them, and look at them sitting like this. What's wrong with them? I think I'm just going to rip out that page in the book. Like, that might be my response. Like, really? Because I'm like, what? How in the world are these people so terrible? I didn't see this coming. And yet, do you know that our God, the true and living God, the only God, he never thinks that to himself. Because our God has all knowledge, and he has all wisdom. And in his perfect knowledge and wisdom, he has orchestrated a plan such that it includes even the fall of man, but it also includes the redemption of man through the one man, Jesus Christ, through the one mediator, the Lord, Jesus Christ. You think of any good playwright, any good author, any good director, what do they do? They begin a story, but there's a moment of crisis. There's a moment of hardship. There's a moment that is tragic. Why? All for the purpose for the protagonist, for the hero, to come onto the scene. And it's the same thing our God has done. Who is the hero? Who is the star of the show? The one who has perfect wisdom and knowledge. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who comes into the world to live the perfect and holy life that you and I and our first parents could not live. Jesus comes into the world and he lives a life of perfection and he goes to the cross. The God-man. He dies there on the cross on behalf of sinners. He dies there so that if we believe him and believe in him, we might be saved. Our sins would be washed away. We would be be forgiven and we would once again be granted entrance into the kingdom of God. On the third day, the Lord Jesus rose again, victorious, triumphant, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And now he promises eternal life to whoever would come to him. This is the gospel plan and this is the plan that shows the height of God's wisdom and knowledge. 
perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge. Paul keeps going, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. See what else it says? And how inscrutable are his ways. Paul says that God's judgments, his decisions are totally beyond us. They are too much for us. He says that his ways are inscrutable. They are beyond and above scrutiny. They cannot be questioned. This is our God. How amazing is that? That the ways of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, they're so far beyond us. I hope at this moment you're beginning to feel the weight of who this God is, who your God is, Christian. I hope you're beginning to feel how massive this king really is. And I hope what's beginning to stir inside of you is a holy and healthy fear, a holy and healthy sense of awe, a holy and healthy sense that there is no one like God, be in awe of him, that this God is not like you or I, You know, the psalmist says something very fascinating in Psalm 50, verse 21. He's speaking and he's recording what God says, and God is speaking to mankind. And he says to man, you thought I was one like you. God speaks to man and he says this phrase, you thought I was one like you. And because of that false thought, I will now rebuke you. You see, this is a moment where we ought to tread cautiously. We ought to step lightly because we're treading on holy ground. When we speak of our God, we ought to remember who this God is. God is not simply our chum or our buddy, but he is God most high. He is holy. He is righteous. And he calls us to recognize who he is if we dare approach him. And we only dare approach him on the basis of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, whatever you're facing in your life right now, know this, our God is perfectly knowledgeable and he's perfectly wise. His ways and his judgments, they are unsearchable and they are inscrutable. Whatever it is that is a question that's haunting you or bothering you right now, even maybe in your Bible reading since last year, you arrived at a point in the scriptures where you said, how can this be? Is this actually in the Bible? I'd encourage you. It's okay to have those questions. We all have those questions. And yet, how we approach those questions ought to be in a place of reverence and awe. Because God doesn't, do, God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't, he's not required to do anything for us. Therefore, God is not on trial. No, all of us are. We are on trial. God is not on trial. We're on trial. We ought to then approach God with such reverence, with such care, with such caution knowing that the Lord is ever wise, he's ever knowledgeable. Whatever your situation, whatever your circumstances, remember this, your God knows, your God is perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in understanding. In our society, for people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the temptation is to look at God and say, well, how could a good God allow this to happen? How could there be such a place as hell? Why in the world would God allow people to sin in the first place? And the temptation is to treat God as though we were his equal. But these verses show us very clearly, no, not at all. God is not our equal. God is holy. And we ought to be very careful. We ought to remember that we are the clay and God is the potter, Romans 9. We ought to approach him with reverence. We ought to say, God, please show us your truth. 
Show us the answer from the word. Help us to understand what is your will. Help us to understand why you do what you do according to your word. And the Lord will show you. He will. If you will remain humble and low, seeking God through his word, seeking God through godly help and input. Our God, perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge. There's no one like him. Be in awe. Now see these, verse 34, verse 35, Paul is now quoting from Isaiah 40 and elsewhere in Job, Job 36, Job 35, elsewhere. And he's now about to ask three rhetorical questions. I, ho- I wonder if you can figure out the answer as we read these verses. Kids at home, you're in your house. I'm going to read these three rhetorical questions. You can yell out the answer as loud as you like. Answer these questions with me. Let's see if we can get the answer to these questions. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Question number one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? I'm sure you know the answer. No one. (laughs) No one. No one. No one. That's the answer. Nobody. No one knows the mind of the Lord. His perfect wisdom, his perfect knowledge, so high, we cannot attain it. This is our God. The answer is no one. Second question. Second rhetorical question. Again, let's see if we can get this. Second rhetorical question. Verse 34. Or who has been his counselor? Who, who is part of the council team of God? Who is part of the royal cabinet of God who sits there and says, well, God, I don't think you should do this. I don't think you should do that. Why am I speaking with an English accent? I just assume people who are smart, who give advice to others, speak with an English accent. I don't know why. But who is giving God advice as though you should do this and you should not do that? Answer? Say that home. Answer? No one, no one, no one is giving advice to God as though he did not know what to do, as though he was sitting on his throne, wondering to himself, scratching his head, saying, what do I do? The world is falling apart. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Our God has no counselors. He knows all things. He rules all things. Last rhetorical question, verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has ever given something to God that would make God a debtor to man? No one. No one's ever given something to God that would make God now in debt to a person. Rather, God gives us everything. To the just and even the unjust, he causes rain to fall down upon us. No, our God is good. He doesn't owe man, but he gives us everything we need and we require. This is the grace of God. This is the amazingness of God. This is the awesomeness of our God. Be in awe of him. There is no one like your God, Christian. Realize that again. Allow again. Allow your heart and your mind to be renewed. Allow your heart and your affections to be stoked. Allow the fire to begin to burn. Let it sink into your soul. There's no one like your God. Be in awe of him. This great and amazing God. Now Paul is about to conclude this section with a famous verse. Verse 36 I'll read it for us, and it'll take us to our final point. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This takes us to our final point. Everything exists for God. Give him glory. Everything exists for God. Give him glory. 
Paul ends this section, he begins by saying, for from him, from God is everything. We get from this that God is the origin. He's the originator of everything. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It goes on to say in verse 2, the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And it goes on to say that nothing was created that was not created by the word. What do we see there? The Trinitarian act of creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in the creation of the world. Where did this world come from? The age-old question, where did it come from? How did it start? Did it cause by some sort of cosmic bang? Or was it some sort of primordial ooze coming from the ground? How did it start? No, it was by the power and work of God. The God who causes everything and brings life to everything. God, for from him, God, the originator of everything, he is the reason why life exists. He's the reason why you are alive today. God, the origin of everything. Then see what else he says. For from him and through him, through him, what do we see here? God is the sustainer of everything. Hebrews 1, he upholds everything. He holds everything by the word of his power. The living God, Jesus Christ, holds everything together together through the word of his power, by the power of his word. God is upholding the entire galaxy, the entire universe. Think about that. If for one nanosecond, if for one nanosecond, the Lord stopped upholding the universe, all of reality would disintegrate into oblivion. This is the power of our God. He upholds everything by the word of his power, from the very stars and and, and planets in their orbits to the molecules that make up matter. Our God upholds everything. For from him and through him, the sustainer of everything. And now see what else it says. For from him and through him and to him. And to him are all things. To God. To God are all things. We find here, God is the purpose of all things. The purpose of all things. He is the trajectory. He is the goal. He is the reason for being. He is the raison d'etre. That's French. The reason for being. He is the end goal, the aim, the purpose of everything. Again, why do we exist? That age-old question that haunts so many of us, that maybe might be haunting you right now. Why are you here? Why, why, why are you living another day right now? Why, why are you listening to this? Why? For from him and through him and to him are all things, including you. You see, you were created for God. We were created for God and for him alone. You see, when we realize this, this is when life begins to fit together like a puzzle piece. When you get this, when you understand this, that you are not the end goal of your life, you are not the end goal of the universe, the world doesn't revolve around you, it revolves around God. What you need in your life, what we all need is a Copernican revolution. You know, back in the day, they used to say the whole solar system revolves around the earth. Copernicus comes along and he says, no, 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 we've got it wrong. No, it's not the earth that's the center of our solar system, rather it's the sun. 
The sun is that which gives life to everything. If there was no sun, there would be no life. No, it's the sun that is at the center. And he was right. The sun is at the center of the solar system. And likewise, it is not you who is at the center. It is God. Everything revolves around God. And until you find this out, until you believe this, until you hold on to this, for you who may be resisting and fighting against God, trying to live your own life, do you not know you will not find happiness? You will not find contentment? You will not know direction in your life? Why? Because you're living misaligned. You need to fall in alignment with God. And the reality is this. He's the center of life. Christ is the center of existence. And until you choose to begin to revolve around him, your life will always be out of whack. But our God here reminds us again, through his awesomeness, through his greatness, through his amazingness, he's calling you again to fall in line with all of creation and to live for him. Brothers and sisters, hear this, 2021, make it this year a year for God. A year dedicated to God, a life dedicated for God. May that be the heartbeat of this church, to be a people dedicated to God, living for God alone, for from him and through him and to him are all things, all things, everything. And for that reason, see this final phrase, to him be glory forever. Amen. To him be be glory forever. Amen. Paul says, because of this, because of the greatness of God, because of the amazingness of God, his power, his might, his wisdom, the fact that everything is for him, through him, to him, this means God alone is the one deserving of glory. Glory, it's the acknowledgement that something has weight. It's the acknowledgement that something is worth more than anything else. It's the acknowledgement that something, someone, is greater than all the rest. Paul says we ought to give glory to God. Everything is for the glory of God. Back in the early 2000s, when LeBron James first came out of high school into the NBA, he was projected to be a phenom. He's proven true on all of that. We can have the discussion later, who's the greatest of all time, MJ or LBJ, that's a conversation for another time. But when LeBron first came to the Cavs and he was tearing up the league, Nike ran an ad campaign, and I wonder if you remember this. It's an ad campaign where LeBron in his Cavaliers jersey is behind a black backdrop And he's facing the other way, and you see his jersey, and he has his hands in the air, throwing chalk in the air, his pregame ritual. And at the top, underneath a swoosh, on top of a swoosh symbol, it says, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. The idea is that we're all witnesses of the glory and greatness of LeBron James. We're all witnessing history. We're all witnessing the amazingness of a man. Now, granted, yes, LeBron James is a, is a good athlete. He's a really good athlete. But can we just be honest right now and just admit that the man puts an orange ball into a hoop? That he, he takes a ball, a sphere, and throws, his, throws it into a cylinder. He throws it into a hoop. And we're saying that this, we're, we're all to be witness of, of this man's glory in throwing a ball, a sphere, into a hoop. And isn't that just literally a, a, a microcosm of what we're all trying to do. 
We're all trying to point the arrow at ourselves and say, look at me, look at me. Don't I deserve glory? Aren't I so great? Aren't I so amazing? Look at me, look at me, look at me. But the reality is our glory is nothing in comparison to God. Our glory is nothing. It's non-existent in comparison to God. To God be the glory alone. And God will receive the glory alone. God says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, my glory I will give to no one else. I will not share my glory with anyone else. I will not give it to a carved idol, and I will not give it to another person. I will not give it to a human being which I created. God demands, he demands that we give him glory. Do you realize that, Christian? He's calling you to live your life orbited and surrounding around him, to live for him. And you who are not a Christian, do you know God calls you to give him glory and you will give him glory? You will give him glory, either willingly or finally, by force, on that day when the Lord returns. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus has the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a day coming in which you will give glory to God. But if you do not choose to give glory to God now, willingly, joyfully, coming to Christ because he has died and risen to save you from your sins, do you know he will make you bow forcibly on that day? As we sang, we also recited from Revelation chapter 4, speaking of the holiness and greatness of God. In Revelation chapter 5, it speaks of how all of creation will cry out, is crying out, will cry out, holy and awesome and worthy is the Lamb who's seated on the throne. Everyone, everyone, it does not matter who you are, you will give glory to God. But I urge you, I urge you now, whoever you are, wherever you are, bow your knee to Jesus now. Bow your knee to King Jesus now because he will demand glory from you. And he calls you now to come joyfully. Come now. It says in Psalm 2 to come and kiss the son. Why? Or else he come to you in his wrath. He is the king. He calls you now to believe, to trust, and to willingly give him glory and to live life to the fullest. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 11, the people on earth, self-centered, living for themselves, wanted to make a monument to their own glory. And so they began to build the Tower of Babel. We know how that ended. God dispersed the people because he would not allow for them to try and rival his glory. No, not, not, not at all. He would not allow that. Think again in Acts chapter 12. Herod had captured Peter. Peter is released after the people of God pray. And then later in that chapter... Herod is giving an oration. He's speaking, and the people at the time begin to worship him, and they say, the voice of God and not a man. It says in Acts chapter 12 that immediately an angel came down and struck him dead, and that he was eaten by worms. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. Humanity, you and I, we are naturally glory thieves. We try and steal the glory of God. We try and take away the attention from God and put it on ourselves. But it cannot work. It will not work. And finally, in the end, God will have his glory. I urge you again, believe in the Lord Jesus. Confess your sins. Admit that Jesus is God. Give him glory. Join the people of God as we give God glory for saving us, for rescuing us, people who did not deserve it.
Paul says, to God be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory forever. Brothers and sisters, I hope right now as you've seen God in his word, your heart is beginning to be fueled with worship. I pray that as you've seen God in his word, your your life is beginning to be fueled with worship and that you have a newfound perspective and desire to live for the glory of God. Just as it would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 30, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let that be your aim this year, that whether you're homeschooling your three rascals at home, trying your best to teach them and train them up in the Lord, do that to the glory of God, sister. You you manager, you employer who has people that report to you and you're doing your best and, and sometimes it's difficult. Manage people to the glory of God. Love those under you to the glory of God. Maybe you as a student, you're about to graduate high school this year and you don't know what the future holds. You don't know which school to go to. Let the new guiding principle be, Lord, where would you lead me to? What school would you lead me to where I can most glorify you? What program would you have me to apply to where I can use the giftings and abilities that you've given me to the glory of God? Maybe you right now, you feel overwhelmed and scared over what the future holds. What's going to happen with lockdown? What's going to happen with, with our country, with our nation, with our, with our world? Be reminded of the greatness of your God that he cares for you, that he loves you, that he knows you, and that he is with you. Give glory to God by trusting him. Give glory to God by choosing to believe in the promises of God. Give glory to him by being different from the people around us who do not know this amazing God and who live with fear and turmoil. No, we know the God of the universe, and he is good, and he is on our side, and he will be with us. Brothers and sisters, Our passage shows us this picture of the Lord. Ideas have consequences. What you think and understand about God, it will impact the rest of your life. I pray right now that you are finding the greatness of God is impacting you. And that Lord willing, it would stamp the rest of your life for the rest of this year. Let's go ahead and pray. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God in heaven, we pray that you would receive the glory that you are due from us. That you would fill us and fill our hearts with worship, with adoration. That as we've seen you, we would realize that there's no one comparable to you. There is no one like you. You deserve the glory. You deserve the worship. So please help us. Help us to live with you as the the focal point of our lives. Help us to live gripped by God. Help us not to be distracted, but help us to keep our gaze upon the Lord. Let this year be a different year, no matter what is up ahead. May it be a year in which we give you the maximum glory from our lives. Because you are worthy, because you have saved us. We thank you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.